0: Asked me to come and uh, and preach this morning, so I'm going to do so. We're going to pick up your doctrine series, looking at the ordinances of Lord's Supper and baptism uh, this morning, and uh, we'll we'll kind of anchor that discussion in First Corinthians 11. So, if you have uh, your copy of the scriptures, you can go there now, or you can turn your phone on and click your app, whichever uh, you choose uh, to. Find your way and uh, and navigate the scriptures. Let me uh, admit at the outset, this morning is going to be a bit different uh, for me on a couple of levels. One, uh, just being an outside uh, pastor in an environment like this is a bit is a bit distinct, Um, particularly in a church plant. Just recognize that much of the health of a church plant as it starts flows from its pulpit, and so you can, uh, as a church plant,er uh, really make up. For a lot of poor programs and bad decisions if you have good preaching. But if you have terrible preaching, no amount of other stuff really matters all that much um, because people are just not going to connect um, with the work of the church. And so what happens here week in and week out is super important. And I know FUD and Jack and crew work really hard to teach well and effectively, and I don't want to mess that up. So if I do, please come back next week. There'll be better preaching. Um, next week, uh, I'll just try to uh, be faithful to the scriptures and, and honor those this morning. Secondarily, um, Fud has given me uh, a bit of a challenge this morning. We're going to try to talk about the ordinances, uh, specifically Lord's Supper and baptism, in the same sermon. And uh, that's, that's a bit of a daunting feat, uh, to say the least. Um, there, there's really not a singular text of scripture that does baptism and the Lord's Supper and talks about those both in tandem. So I'm going to do something that I really don't like a ton. We're going to play a little bit of uh, search and find in your scriptures this morning. We'll, we'll be in 1 Corinthians 11, but we're going to bounce around a pretty good bit, uh, try to provide some stuff on the screens for you behind. So if you've got a notebook or uh, something that you can jot some of these references down to wrestle through them in your community groups, throughout the week. That's going to be really helpful because we're not going to be able to exposit every passage of scripture that we look at uh, We look at this morning, um, which is a, a bit abnormal for me. So because of that, uh, uh, that challenge and, um, and just because we need God's grace, let's pray together and then we'll turn our attention to the scriptures. So God, we do ask that you would be kind to meet with us, to give us clarity uh, this morning, give my words clarity and precision with your scriptures. Pray that they would be helpful to this community uh, as they think through uh, essential aspects of Christian doctrine. Um, pray for your grace to not merely hear but to act in obedience to what we hear this morning and we ask it in Christ's good name. Amen. So um, My wife and family are here. My folks still live in Rock Hill, so we've been up. My mom's birthday was yesterday, so we had an opportunity to visit with them. And uh, about two weeks ago, Sarah's uh, grandmother passed away. She was 93. And uh, this was, as you can imagine, with a 93-year-old passing, it's uh, sad that you're going to miss someone, but it's really a, a celebratory deal. Um, you get to gather with family and friends, so we had an opportunity uh, together to celebrate her life in a, in a church service, but also to go back uh, to family's homes afterwards and just tell stories, think on her life, th- those type things. Well, one of the things that uh, Sarah did when we went back to the, to the family's house is she went into her grandmother's room, um, where she lived for her final couple of years, and just collected uh, a host of family pictures, uh, the albums. She had them stacked on her lap, and spent uh, the next good part of the day just flipping through uh, albums with her dad and um, with our daughters, and just talking and sharing stories. And something happens when you, when you do that, um, as you turn the page and as you see different images. The image speaks, but there are layers behind the image. That is, you know, stories about the person, like in each picture that Sarah would come to would be a new story that someone would tell. Uh-huh. Kind of the common phrase of that is, like, a picture's worth a thousand words. You've probably heard that, right? So we see that on social media every day. Somebody will, you know, post a picture of their dog licking them in the mouth or some food that they ate that's stupid and cheesy or their kids doing something silly that they think is awesome and nobody else thinks is cool. Uh, but I mean, people are doing that. and like So the idea would be behind that, behind every picture that you see, there are layers and layers and layers of more story to tell, that that picture gives us something, but the the layers behind give us more. words that help explain the picture. Well, incidentally, this morning, as we hold up the idea of baptism and the Lord's Supper, the reality is these two pictures are not just worth a thousand words, but throughout church history, they've been, uh, they've amounted to hundreds of thousands of words. Uh, Pages and pages volumes and volumes of books have been written around these two pictures. Uh, People have died around these two pictures, uh, what is going on, the realities that they present. The reality is that many denominations have formed. Uh, The church has divided over their understanding of these two images. So these are not incidental images. These these pictures that God has given us um, come with them, layers and layers of understanding that help us see what the pictures really mean. Since the time of the Reformation, the church, the evangelical church, has been marked by two specific ordinances, two specific pictures that are teased out and held up as the two ordinances of the evangelical church, really for three reasons. These are the Lord's Supper and baptism, three reasons. One, because they're specific ceremonies. So um, they're, they're not just kind of happenstance, regular practice for Christians, but rather there's something that has a ceremonial import. They're specifically instituted by Jesus. That would be number two. Specifically instituted by Jesus. So some would say, like, what about um, foot washing? John 13. Jesus did it, and there's some transport that believers are supposed to serve and do, but we don't see the clear institution of foot washing and the way we do the lord's supper and baptism and then thirdly uh, the reason these are separated out and and most importantly is because they're clear picture of the gospel because these two more clearly than other specific ordinances or ceremonies have clear overlap with the gospel message that i hope you will see uh quite clearly this morning the first we see um throughout the narrative accounts of the Gospels, but really specifically instituted by Jesus in places like Matthew 28 with the Great Commission, where Jesus says words that you're probably quite familiar with, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. So quite clear. That disciples are to be made and the net result of disciple making would be baptism And the baptism would follow this trinitarian paradigm of the father son and holy spirit Make disciples and those disciples would be baptized First corinthians 11 the text that I pointed uh, your attention to this morning in verse 23 Paul in writing to the corinthian church that if you know anything about the scriptures, you know the corinthian church is just chaos Um, really fractured, disunited. And in this uh, Corinthian correspondence, where Paul's going to write them numerous letters, two of which we have, uh, he holds up the institution of the Lord's Supper, um, a ceremony that Christ enacted on the night that he was betrayed. Um, We see in verse 23 that Paul says, I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. So this is Uh, Paul has gotten it from the Lord. He's passing it on to the Corinthian church. Clearly, this has been a reality for some time, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So clearly in the Corinthian letter is the reality that the church that follows would be marked by a regular celebration of this meal, wherein the body of Christ, the picture of his broken body, and the blood that is spilled out would be held before the community, an enactment of his substitutionary death on behalf of his people. These ceremonies, seemingly quite clear pictures of the gospel, continue to be nuanced and defined through the history of the church. Particularly a major divide in understanding of the Lord's Supper and baptism came at the time of the Reformation, when most typically in that day the view of these ceremonies, these pictures, was not symbolic, but rather an actual, tangible means of grace understanding. And by that I mean that those w- they would argue that these elements were somehow the actual body of Christ. That something happened in the ceremony whereby, as we take the supper, we actually receive the body of Christ. Some arguing in the church of that day that baptism wasn't simply a picture of the work of Christ on behalf of fallen humanity to save them, to die the death that they deserve, but actually one became a Christian in that very act. That something happened spiritually in going under the water and coming back up that transferred one into the kingdom of God. The reformers argue, no, uh, we hold to a purely symbolic view of these acts, that something doesn't mystically happen in the moment that Fudd holds up the bread that transfers that bread into no longer bread, but now the body of Christ. And in the same fashion, nothing happens in the act of baptism that somehow transfers one to the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, but rather these are outward symbols of an already existing inward reality. Unfortunately, in our day, the symbolic view that was a proper correction to a means of grace understanding of these acts has swung way too far in the opposite direction. And in most evangelical and particularly Baptist churches, I would argue that it's no longer a means of grace view and it's no longer a symbolic view, but now it's become a just-because view. We don't really know why we do these things. But we know that they're supposed to be done in the church. We, many of us, were steeped in a church culture where there was some regular refrain of putting out elements on a table and the pastor would do, the deacons would come forward, the plates would be passed. And uh, this was just what happened at the church. The church had Sunday school. The church had Wednesday night programs for kids. And oh, and by the way, the church also took communion. They took the Lord's Supper and they baptized People, this was the world that I am steeped in, where the symbolic view had become a weak institutionalized practice that had lost its vividness and gospel clarity. Now, the younger crowd, and where I place many of you—I'm uh, 34—the crowd, one one group behind me, often reacts to this weak institutionalized practice steeped in more of a postmodern understanding of reality many younger believers are arguing for a return to symbols to liturgy to imagery within the church it's often the case that you'll see particularly outside of the southeast that you'll see churches gathering with young 20-somethings and stained glass facilities with candles on the table with a very liturgical service uh Congregational readings are quite common. But often what happens in that younger camp is they want the symbols and the imagery, but they're implemented in a very sloppy fashion. I'll tell you what I mean. I, I, um, a few years ago, had an opportunity to lead a mission trip uh, for, FCA, for an FCA group for a very prominent university uh, in our state. Uh, they were going to New Orleans and took a large group of students to New Orleans. I was basically the hired gun to come in and teach Uh, throughout the week. So I walked through the book of Nehemiah with four or five hundred college students. And I remember uh, it was Wednesday or Thursday night. We were nearing the end of the week together and I came into the group. I was getting ready to teach on the book of Nehemiah and some uh, college kid got up and uh, and took the mic and uh, was making his opening announcements and said, oh and by the way, uh, there's a table in the back with communion on it. Take it whenever you want. We've got the elements uh, in the back. They're already, the bread's already divided. The juice is out there. And just at any time over the next three hours, if you feel led to take communion, go for it. There's some, there was some weird, like, candle that you could light as you were taking communion. I didn't really know what was going on. And so throughout the rest of the night, it was the weirdest thing. There were, like, 400 college students, and they're just, like, taking— I mean, just walking by like you would take a contact card on the way out, and they're just taking a piece of bread and taking some juice, kind of holding off in the corner and, and, and drinking it real fast, and then just kind of going about their merry way. And I'm thinking, something's been lost, right? Something's been lost. But multiple layers are wrong with that, okay, um, that we could talk about later. But something gets missed when, when communion and these pictures are implemented in that sloppy of a manner. So what we want to say, what we want to ask this morning and the time we have together about these pictures, we want to ask and answer three questions. Three specific questions that give us clarity on the words of these pictures. Number one is who is speaking in these pictures. So if you're writing, these would be good, good questions to inform your conversation as uh, we follow in the community this week. One would be who is speaking in each of these pictures. The second question would be what are the pictures actually saying? What are the pictures saying? And then thirdly, why does that matter? So number one, Who's speaking if pictures speak a thousand words? Who's speaking in these pictures? Number two, what are the pictures saying? And thirdly, why does that matter? And we'll attempt to answer it using both of these images because I think the answers are quite similar in both cases. The first question, who is speaking when we look at these pictures? At first glance, that question is really obvious, isn't it? The answer to that question is quite obvious. Well, clearly people are speaking. We, many of us, were steeped in cultures where these ceremonies were presented in a way where people had an opportunity through taking these symbols to proclaim something. But more specifically, I would caution you that this is not just any people that are speaking, but these pictures are spoken by believers and believers only. These uh, symbols, the imagery, are for God's elect, not just any people, but his people. Baptism, on the one hand, serves as the inaugural rite for Christians. Jesus states that all those who are his disciples would be marked by baptism into the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, following this Trinitarian paradigm of his own baptism. This would mark the life of a Christian. Baptism served as a post-resurrection sign and symbol of the regenerating work of the holy spirit in the life of a believer. And in the book of acts we see this to be the reality that everywhere conversion went baptism soon followed. People are converted and they are baptized. Acts 2 establishes this rhythm after Peter's sermon at Pentecost verse 41 all those who received the word were baptized and they were added to that number uh, there were added that day About 3,000 souls. So we see conversion, baptism. John Hammett in his book on the doctrine of the church equates baptism with a wedding ceremony. That in a wedding ceremony, you don't actually for the first time declare love. A wedding ceremony is a public picture of a love that already exists. This is the reality we see in baptism. That baptism doesn't make one a Christian, but baptism publicly declares that one already is. In the same way the supper serves as an anniversary celebration, we might say. It's not the inaugural rite, it's not the wedding ceremony, but it's a consistent and ongoing, not a one-time event, but a consistent and ongoing marker for those that are Christ specifically those that are in his family. Those that are adopted to Christ are invited to sit at his table. Those that have come into the family through the door of baptism can pull up to the table that Christ has offered. This is a very family function. We come to Christ table, and in so doing, in both baptism and the Lord's Supper, in in one fashion, the Christian does declare, I am his. I'm his. But I want to challenge our understanding of these ceremonies by flipping that a bit and saying it is not simply believers that are speaking in this ceremony, but I would say more importantly, it is God that is speaking In these ceremonies. See, I I remember multiple times and multiple layers of pastors proclaiming these acts um, and really kind of sitting in the seats feeling kind of guilty. Man, what are you doing? You hadn't been baptized yet? Like, you're a Christian, man. Why don't you go get baptized, bro? I mean, that was kind of, they didn't say it quite that way because they're professional Southern Baptist preachers, but that was the way I felt. Like, you you what are you doing, man? You're just sloppy. You're sitting there. Go be baptized. Like, say you're a Christian, okay? Come to the table. like come, come to the meal. But in another fashion, we see that the reality is that it is not simply the Christian saying, I am his, but it is God declaring, you are mine. And I think that is more important. If we have a right understanding of salvation, we would understand that there is nothing in our works that merited our conversion. We aren't saved because we're good enough to come to God's table or to be baptized. But rather, salvation is incredibly passive. It is something that God does. Specifically, Ephesians two thirteen. But now you who are in Christ Jesus, who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You don't bring yourself near, God brought you near. This is the reality that you spoke about in the doctrine of salvation, that the work of salvation is something that God does. And so in baptism and the Lord's Supper, we see God saying, You're mine. These become identity markers on God's kids. Jonathan Lehman, in his book, The Surprising Offense of God's Love, comments this way. These are the two signs that Jesus gave to mark the church off from the world. Baptism and the Lord's Supper then present the borders and the boundaries of church membership. It is here at the membership borders of the local church that the world sees, hears, and I love this, even smells the covenant. It's where the covenant is enacted and symbolized. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are to church members what names are to people. They are identity markers that tell us something about the realities that they picture. Covenant, covenantal identity markers. And as we understand covenant from places like Genesis 17, we see this unilateral nature of God's saving covenant. God saves. And so as identity markers on God's children, we would say passively, God saved me. I didn't save myself. This is why in the act of baptism and the act of Lord's Supper, you don't baptize yourself. You don't set this table. You get invited to the table. You are, this is why everything matters in the image of baptism and the Lord's Supper, and why your pastors will spend great amounts of conversation related to these, because it's a complex deal. Like, you don't get in the dunk tank and dunk yourself underwater. That's not the way it works. You surrender yourself to an administrator who places you under the water and brings you back up. It's an incredibly passive act, because that's the way God saves you. He does the work, dead to sin, alive to Christ. So in a very real way, God is saying, you are mine. Akin to Jesus' baptism, what happens there? God, dove, it's my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. In the act of baptism and the Lord's Supper, we see a sense of God saying, you're mine. You're my beloved son. You're my beloved daughter. You're mine. This gives these symbols much more significance than you mustering up. "Ah, I get to take the Lord's Supper today. God invited you to his table today. That's a big deal secondarily the question what are these symbols saying what are these symbols say? i have an opportunity around our church uh because we're a pretty young uh young community to to perform the marriage ceremonies for a lot of people in our church at first i really resented this or, or quite honestly i just thought it was weird i was like i can actually b- marry people that's weird I didn't, know, like, I didn't know if there was like, an online form you're supposed to fill out, submit deal. I didn't know the dress code. I didn't, like, is there this mantra that I'm supposed to say? Like, When do they actually become married? To it? And, the, you know, and power entrusted to me by the state of South There's no power entrusted to me by the state of South Carolina. I don't even know what that means. So I'm just kind of thinking, like, this is really weird. So I, I have to, because so many couples are saying, like, will you marry us? I'm like, all right, got to figure out if it's legal, and then I've got to figure out what I'm supposed to, what am I supposed to, what am I doing? And as I've begun uh, this pastoral journey and thinking through what am I actually doing, the way I communicate it to the couples that I baptize or that I have an opportunity to marry is that I am, my role is to comment, to serve as the commentator on a silent drama that they're gonna enact before the church community. That they are, in most ceremonies, the only things they're gonna say are their vows and they may say something I do around their ring exchange, but the majority of of the service is me talking. But if Ephesians 5 is true, what they're doing is they're acting out a picture for the people of the way God loves his church. So what I want to do as a pastor with a microphone is say, I want to put words to a silent image that's going on before the congregation like a football commentator, basketball commentator. He's telling you, explaining what's happening before you. So that's what I do for the couple. Here's what's happening. God created marriage. Here's the reality that it points to. Christ's love for his church. Here's how Christ loves you. Invite people to trust in Christ. That's what my role is, is to put words to something that's playing out silently in pictures. In the similar fashion, I want to help us this morning put words to what you're saying, what God is saying, in this picture, what's being declared. Because in healthy evangelical churches, the Lord's Supper and baptism should be the best sermons that are preached in the church. Best sermons, far and away. This morning when you come to the Lord's table, you gather here, you are preaching the best sermons that this church will ever hear. Baptism is a far better sermon than I'll ever preach. But what is actually being said there? Four specific things that I think are being declared. Number one, and we've already commented on this, number one is that God has saved me. God has saved me. So a couple of things are important there past tense and passive. God has saved me. So our baptism follows our conversion, it doesn't precede it. And our baptism affirms the work of God. I didn't save myself, but rather God saved me. And the best picture for that, the actual language of baptism in the scriptures is one of full immersion. That I picture the reality of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. That this has been a reality to me, that my sins have been forgiven and I've been raised to new life. And being invited to this table, I declare to a community that this body and this blood was broken for me. It's a personal act that God has saved me. And this, specifically, this table that we come to is to be a consistent and ongoing act of the church. We're told by Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, almost in passing, that as often as you do this, We're not told specifically a frequency of how often you should do it, though I would argue for way more frequently than less frequently. That as frequently as we can as the gathered church, we are to proclaim, God has saved me. And this is to be a public declaration. That's why in your community, when people are baptized, they're going to have an opportunity to publicly proclaim their personal testimony. God has saved me. That is important, and that's intentional by your pastors. They don't mouth the words, but they let another—they per- let the person that was saved communicate it. They're saying, God has saved me, and this is to be a very public act. I love it in our community, uh, before we merged with uh, this existing church, um, we just had to beg, borrow, and steal for a place to do baptism. Um, I don't know where you guys baptized, but we did a little bit of everything, okay? Backyard swimming pool, lake, we ended up buying a horse trough and just putting it on the back of pickup trucks because it was awesome, and you could just dunk people there. Now, what happens in that is we have an opportunity to get away from the world that many of us grew in where it was kind of like this angelic presence hovering in the back. I don't look good in a robe, so I can't pull that off, all right? The robed pastor that's way far removed back here, and he kind of parrots some words and dunks the person, and they magically disappear out of the pool. Like what we've done, what we're trying to do, is push baptism to a proclamatory act by people that they get an opportunity to speak the gospel specifically to their non-believing friends and family, to all who would gather around secondly uh, what are these acts saying and this is one that many of us really need to wrestle through is that the acts proclaim i am united with the church if jesus has saved me then secondarily i am united with a church and unfortunately or fortunately however you can't separate those two that in scripture, to be saved is to be united with the church. We live in a day of radical individualism that says, I want to love Jesus, but hate the church. In fact, we sell a lot of books related to that very thing. Okay? It's a terribly unbiblical notion. To be saved is to be a part of the church on two levels. One, the church universally. We see that in Ephesians 4. There's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's over all and through all and in all. There's one Christian baptism that all people of all times that are in Christ have been baptized into one family. And this is a really beautiful thing for us as uh, new churches the Southeast to think for a moment that as we enact these ceremonies in our church, we are somehow a part of God's redemptive work among all people at all times and all places. To think in the very act of baptism and the Lord's Supper, somehow I have collaboration with believers in Egypt and in India, believers that lived in various times and places that I'm carrying a picture that Jesus has instituted amongst all of his church. And it's a beautiful reminder for us that God is still drawing people to himself. That right now, as we have the supper spread before us, using Jesus' imagery, the banquet has been spread, the table is set, and people are invited to the table. And come one day, come one day, There will be a marriage feast of the Lamb, where for all time, God's family will sit together and worship him forever. But for now, we live in the tension of the banquet is available. It's already ready, but it's not yet fully consummated. And so right now, God's drawing people to himself. There's still room at the table. This is a beautiful picture for us to be reminded that the gospel is still on the move. And yet more specifically than that, and this is where I want to press you a little bit, it's not simply collaboration with the universal church at all times and all places, but it is meant to be a very intimate celebration between those who have partnered together in singular expressions of the local church. This is not some generic meal that you take disconnected from the gathered community. You don't take communion in your dorm room. You better not, Okay. That's not what the ceremony is meant for. You're meant to take the supper in the community of the church that you have committed yourself to. Now, denominationalism and church fracturing in the southeast gives many of you the opportunity to play merry-go-round on local church. You're in one one week and another one the next week and another one the next week and another one the next week and on an FCA trip the next week and doing this and that. I'm going to argue you cannot genuinely take the Lord's Supper with your gathered church if you're in a different one every week or if you're taking the meal with different churches every week. How in the world can you embody the horizontal nature of what the Supper's meant to do, which is it's meant to be a uniting force between singular expressions of the local church? This is paul's argument in first corinthians 11 You've probably heard this verse read before whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the lord In an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the lord Now every time I heard that explained it was very individualistic Like don't eat it unworthily meaning don't come to the table with known sin in your life That you need to repent of to come and I think that is a valid explanation that you do need to repent and come to the table, and we'll talk about that in a few moments. But that's not what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 11. In 1 Corinthians 11, he's talking about disunity in the church. And he says, don't come to the table if you're a church divided. That is to eat of the meal in an unworthy manner, that you are to come to the church, to a, or come to the Lord's table, in a very real light way to say, this is my family. And any division to that unity is meant to be repented of so that you can gather at the table. And Our American culture has lost a lot of this, right? I mean, how often do you see the beauty of family meals anymore? Where we all gather to the table and amidst our individual lives, like our family and our extended family, and most of the time they don't even live in the same city anymore. And you might do it at Thanksgiving, but at Thanksgiving you really don't like the people that you're with at Thanksgiving because you see them like twice a year, and so it's just weird and awkward. And you're trying to figure out what do I talk to my uncle about because I never see my uncle and he's just weird. And you, I mean it's like all these dynamics. It's the the reality of the family table is meant to be a picture of unity, right? We gather as a family living our individual lives through the day but we rendezvous at the Lord's table and disunity is not going to be welcomed at this table Sarah and I fight this in our homes consistently we're not going to argue at the dinner table the dinner table is meant to be a place of peace and healing and wholeness and the ability to take a deep breath from your day and gather with your family it's meant to have a sweetness to it that is what this meal is meant to do to be a means of uniting with God's people. And specifically, we see in 1 Corinthians that the last step in church discipline for unrepentant sinners, you know what it is? It's to ban them from this table. They're no longer invited to come to the family meal because we would have ample means as church and as pastors to say they're not regenerate. They don't know Jesus. And because this is a family meal of Jesus' children, we would say living in known unrepentant sin ongoing that you are no longer welcome at the Lord's table. And it's meant to heap a weight of conviction upon one that they would relinquish sin and run to the table if they are his child or that they would be converted if they are not. You can't have that experience in the life of the local church if this table isn't a means of unity. If you're not forced to look across the aisle and say, you know what, I actually know that dude, and I love him, and we're coming to the same table together. Andrew Murray convictingly writes these words, how often have the guests at Jesus' table sat next to one another for years in succession without knowing or loving one another or helping one another? Many a one has sought after close communion with the Lord and not found it because he would have the head alone without the body. And that's thoroughly, and that it were thoroughly understood, Jesus must be loved, honored, and served, and known in his members. This is meant to be a means of union. Now, I want you to do a little bit of, think of introspection with me for a minute if you grew up in a religious environment where the lord's supper was taken how often have you seen the table the invitation to the table done in a way that invites horizontal unity i'll tell you my experience is pastor stands up front deacons come forward Plates are passed with the weird cups with the like saran wrap seal on them with a the little pill in the top. Okay. Everybody kinda holds that real kind of awkwardly, not really sure while some music plays and you're kinda looking around or has the plates all been passed? And then typically there'll be some kind of invitation for uh one of the deacons to come forward and he'll pray a prayer over the bread and then the bread will be taken, and pray a prayer over the juice, and the juice will be taken, and then you hear the weird clinking sounds where all the drinks get stacked up, and you're not really sure where to put them, and then typically the pastor's going to pray a prayer, and you're dismissed, and you go home. You can do every bit of what I just described without having any engagement with anybody around you. It's a purely individual act. You could just as easily do that in your dorm room. Dorm room and a pastor, and that's all you need. I'm going to argue that however you practice the supper, and there will be nuance to the ways that the church practices the supper. You do it a bit differently here at Remedy than we do it at, at Cherrydale. But the reality is, however it's done, it needs to be done in a manner that forces you to look around. To not simply look down, but to look around. And just say, how am I doing at loving the people that I've committed my life to? In the singular local church. Number three. What is the supper saying? It's saying I will be holy. Because I've been made holy. I will be holy. Because I've been made holy. Again highlighting the passive nature of your declared status justified. Forgiven all your sin forgiven in the person and work of Christ. Holy, standing before God, blameless realities that should astound your mind if you're in Christ. That God looks at you and declares you righteous. And yet these acts are meant to be a means whereby you declare to the community, I will fight for holiness. I will fight for purity because it's been a declared reality of mine. Similar to the Old Testament washings, that picture a removal of shame and guilt associated with sin. These realities are meant to give us a public means of laying aside sin and fighting for holiness. That we would, as Paul says in Romans 6, be raised to walk in newness of life. One author says that throughout the rest of your life, those of you that have been baptized and are continuing to live in ongoing unrepentant sin, that he prays that God would grab you by your baptism. Okay. Meaning, That your baptism and the conviction of you stood before a gathered community at one point in time and said, I am his and he is mine. I have died to sin and am being raised to walk in newness of life. And then you've spent the last 10 years of your life in ongoing unrepentant rebellion. That the prayer would be that God would grab you by your baptism. That the reality of what you declared before a community at one time would heap conviction of sin, and would prompt you to live in obedience to that which you have proclaimed. And secondly, communion pictures that same reality, even in the very word, that as we come to this table, we picture our ongoing communion with Christ. Bruce Milne says that the Lord's Supper then is more than an act of simple remembrance. It's also a point of fellowship with the risen and exalted Lord. This is a communion table where you commune with the Lord. So you're meant to have time for introspection, prayer, solemnity. As you think about coming to this table, that you are literally communing with the Lord and that you are saying in this act, I do commune with the Lord. I, I do commune with him. And then fourthly and lastly, these pictures proclaim... That one day I will be made perfectly holy. So, right now we proclaim I will be holy because I've been made holy. But in these ceremonies, there is a longing for the day when I'll be made perfectly holy. Everywhere you see the ceremony of the Lord's Supper enacted, we see Paul even in 1 Corinthians 11 say this We proclaim the Lord's death when? Until he comes back. That there's a forward looking reality to this table and to the act of baptism. The reality is, in the church, because this is a solemn act where you remember, this is the body that was broken for me, blood poured out for me, you're never going to come to remedy one Sunday morning and see the Lord's table put out before you and think, yeah, I nailed it this week. No known sin. Perfect. This was awesome. Okay, I got it exactly right. The reality is you're always going to limp to the Lord's table. This side of heaven, you're always going to limp to this table. And because you have a limp, like if you ever turned your ankle or hurts, like that nagging limp creates a longing. The nagging limp creates a longing for the day when I will gather at the marriage supper of the Lamb never having to deal with the frustration of my own sin again. Perfectly pure. Gathered with people of every tribe, tongue, and nation that are God's elect. Worshiping Him and engaging in His work forever. It makes me long for that day. For that reason, Mark Dever says, and I think it's a beautiful imagery, that the Lord's Supper is a dress rehearsal for the marriage supper of the Lamb. That the Lord's table gives us a dress rehearsal for the day when we'll gather with every tribe, tongue, and nation. We are declared perfectly pure. Last question, and briefly, why does this matter? Why does it matter? I mean, why not just kind of skip them all together? Or just not give a lot of thought as a pastor it would be a lot easier if these things didn't matter i'll be honest with you it's hard it's hard thinking through all the implications of how to administer lord's supper and baptism in ways that honor these realities but why are they so important to the life of god's community of god's church number one i'll give you three number one it matters because we need repentance we need repentance. Unfortunately, ceremonies that simply highlight the remembering aspect often lose that. Like remember is a real weak word in English language. I remember it. That was cute. The language of remember in the scriptures has much more significance. It's much more vivid and rich with imagery. It is meant to churn up in us all the emotions and thoughts, both head and heart, that accompany the finished work of Christ. We're meant to be there, to feel the weight of significance of what Christ has done on our behalf. And in those moments where you are there, repentance naturally results. For those of you that have been saved, that you're in Christ, that moment or process whereby God brought about transformation in your life, something happened where you saw your sin and Christ's work in fresh light. Unfortunately, as the days wane and as time passes, for many of us, the work of Christ on the cross just becomes common. You kind of yawn through it. What this ceremony is meant to do is put you back in that place to hold up the person and work of Christ for you fresh and anew for you to once again say man I am broken and messed up but Christ has loved me deeply that reality is meant to inform both your coming to the table and ba- or both you coming in baptism and coming to the table in communion It's meant to serve as a public call for repentance. I had a buddy at North Wake Church, Bud and I, uh, and Christy and Sarah, we were all in the same church when we were in seminary, and I had a buddy that would say about North Wake, he always, every time he would come to North Wake Church and the Lord's Supper was displayed before, he's like, man, ah, junk. Because what it does just in seeing the table is it exposes your sin, doesn't it? It exposes how rich a price was paid on your behalf. And almost without a word, it's meant to prompt repentance. This is why pastors give great care and explanation to the table. That you're meant to come to the table once you've considered your past and current sin. And you have committed to relinquish that sin to fight for holiness calls for repentance should be laced throughout the act. Secondly, it says that you will live in obedience. That you will live in obedience. Baptism specifically should be, for us, the first act of that obedience. That we who are in Christ should say, I'm in Christ, therefore baptism is the natural next step. In the scriptures, we see no, no one asking the question. When Jesus says, repent and be baptized, when Paul, repent and be baptized, we see no one saying, can I do the first but not the second? Like, can I just be, you know, repent of my sins, Can kind I of have my own little privatized spirituality, but not public? Because that's weird, dude. It's going to mess up my hair. People are going to look. Fortunately, I don't have that problem. People are going to look at me like, what? Well, I don't know. We're going to be in a horse trough. That seems quite strange. It's been years since I was converted. Like, I'm 55 now. And what would people think of me if I went public with my faith at this point when I haven't up to that? Like, forget all that. The act is meant to be an act of obedience. An act of obedience. Whether you as John McCain was quoted in Newsweek, in response to post-conversion baptism, he said he did not find post-conversion baptism necessary for his own spiritual needs. Okay. Who cares if you find it necessary for your own spiritual needs or not? It's a mark of obedience for those that are in Christ, and so we do it. It's also essential that you consistently and regularly gather at this table with your church. That it is an ongoing act of obedience where you come to this table. Your church community will have a regular and frequent rhythm of administering the supper. And you need to make plans to be here. In my college community, and I know them better than I know you, but I'll say it to you too. Like the merry-go-round church, college church syndrome, you just got to explode it. You gotta say, I'm gonna commit to a singular expression of the local church, and I'm gonna be there even if all my buddies are going to another church because there's something cooler happening there this week. You need the supper more than you need a cool church. So you need to be at this table consistently. And then thirdly, it matters because of mission. It matters because of mission. Repentance, obedience, and mission. Every time these pictures are enacted, it gives us a means to publicly proclaim to the gathered community that some of you are not in Christ. Some of you haven't been baptized because you're not saved. Some of you can't come to this supper because you're not adopted into the family. And so this morning, what I want to invite you to do in just a minute when FUD comes is I want you to pass on the supper today and I want you to take Jesus. Pass on the elements this morning and seek out a pastor, somebody that you trust, one of your community group leaders, and say, how can I know Jesus? Allow him, by his grace, to save you today through faith and repentance of your sin. And then next time this table is offered, you gather with your family as one who has been saved. These realities give us beautiful opportunities To make gospel appeals to the gathered church. To say, you need Jesus. And I invite you this morning to do that. To trust in Christ, to forgive your sins, to take Jesus. You need these pictures more than you know. These pictures are vital to the life of Christ. And I pray that these pictures will be vital to the life of Remedy Church as she goes forward let's pray father i would ask that um, as we have an opportunity to enact one of these pictures this morning that you would be so kind as to meet with us to by your grace uh, remind us that you have declared us to be a part of your family those of us that are in christ that we've been adopted Uh, we don't bring ourselves to the table we're brought to the table and you've done so in and through the finished work of christ Would that fall on fresh soil this morning? Would it have a beauty and uh, significance and weight upon us that we don't often feel as we come to the table? Would you use it as a means of uniting this church? There are known sin, relational sin patterns that people would admit their sin, they would go to one another, that they would make wrongs right with their brothers and sisters and that they would celebrate uh, this meal together as a family. And we pray that you would use these pictures as means of mission for Remedy Church, that you would be so kind to see this church a beachhead for the gospel in this community, that the lost would be saved, that the baptism waters would be stirred often, and that people, that increasing numbers of people would be invited to the Lord's table. We look forward to the day that our churches will partner together and share a meal with you at the marriage supper, at the marriage feast of the Lamb. We long for that day. We invite you to come quickly. And in the meantime, we pray that we would honor you the way that we are a part of your local church, and we ask it in Christ's good name. Amen.